welcome to the Finding Fertile Ground podcast, where I discover stories of grit, resilience, and connection. I'm your host, Marie GG, and this podcast is brought to you by Fertile Ground Communications. As a writer and marketing communications coach, I am fascinated by stories. I help people discover what makes them special and help them share that with the world. If you need help communicating or marketing anything, look us up on FertileGroundCommunications.com and subscribe to hear our next episode. As a podcaster for justice, I stand with my sisters from the Women of Color podcasters community. We are podcasters united to condemn the tragic murders of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and many others at the hands of police. Find out how you can help at hashtag podcasters for justice. This week, I interview my dear friend, Joy Fowler, diversity and inclusion program manager at the Port of Portland. I met Joy over 20 years ago after we both gave birth to boys born at 24 weeks. We volunteered together on Legacy Emanuel Hospital's NICU Family Advisory Board. After her beloved son, Amir, passed away in 2012, Joy and her husband, Alan, founded a foundation for special needs children in his honor, a Miracle Foundation, Inc. I want to apologize for the recording quality of this interview. My microphone was acting up on Zoom. In spite of that, it's one of my favorite conversations yet. Now let's meet Joy. Hi, Joy. You look fantastic. So nice to see your face. Good to see you too. So I'm trying to remember when we met for coffee. Was that like a year ago? It was probably a little over a year ago. Yes. I know. And your life has changed a bit since then. So Quite a bit. <laughs> I so I look forward to getting into that. So let's start from the beginning. Can you share with our listeners about your life? I am a native New Yorker. I grew up in Queens, New York and moved here right out of college. I think I did back then what I consider was the norm of you graduate college, you get married, you move, you have kids. <laughs> and uh, So I literally moved here right after graduating college and getting married all within a, they each happened three weeks apart from one another. Oh my gosh. And I have been in Oregon for the last 30 years. And did you meet Ellen in college? No. So so I moved here by way of a first husband. Oh. And it's so it's such a funny story because when we decided we didn't want to be married to one another, my mother was like, oh, so that means you're going to come home. And I said, <laughs> if I can live in New York, I can live anywhere. And she was like, this is not a song, Joy. You need to come home right away. And I was like, no, if I can live in New York, I can pretty much be anywhere. And luckily, I had made some great friends. I am a member of a sorority that gives back to the community even after we graduate. So I had made connections in that way as well. And so it was really easy for me to stay. So I did. Yeah, no, I didn't know that you'd been married before. So how did you meet Alan then? There was a group of individuals that were transplants, just like myself. And we used to get together probably every weekend or every other weekend just to do different things around the city from happy hour to bowling to karaoke. And there were probably about 30 to 40 of us that used to do that. And one night I was out actually 26 years ago in December, we were bowling at Grand Central Bowl and I walked in and voila, there was Alan. And I remember thinking, oh my gosh, he's just so bossy and so into himself. And then he asked me for my name and my phone number and I gave him like my name, my phone number, my address, everything. It was so weird. <laughs> And then literally from that point, we have been hanging out ever since. Oh, do you still think he's bossy? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but then I am too. So it works out great. <laughs> it seems 
like you complement each other well. We do. We really do. It's it's been probably the best twenty six years of my life. Twenty four years married. Oh, say so you just had an anniversary not too long ago, right? We did. We yeah. did. We celebrated twenty four years. Yeah, congratulations. Thank you. Let's talk about your beloved son Amir. Oh, absolutely. So you know, having already had a son who was about seven at the time, it seemed pretty normal. Okay. Hey, we're pregnant. We're going to have a baby. Let's do it. And probably at about, I would say month five, I started having spotting and went into the doctor and she was like, Oh, you know, this is pretty normal. I'm going to put you on some bed rest. You'll be okay. And I said, all right. And went back, you know, to work and No sooner than I went back to work, uh, things got a little more crazy and they put me on permanent bed rest. And at about 24 weeks, I just felt like something was not right and uh, went back to the doctor. And she just, when I called her, she was like, don't even come and see me, go right to Emanuel Hospital. And instantly I panicked because I was only 24 weeks and I knew that you know, he had a whole lot more time to go, went to Emmanuel and at about 24 weeks, three days, I always laugh because we had seen all these young doctors and we were like, who are these people? They're old enough to be our children. Like it was really comical. And then this older gentleman came in, Dr. Llewellyn from, oh yeah, we had the, Dr. Uh, yeah, from uh, Emmanuel. And he said, look, the baby is telling us that he needs to come out for whatever reason. And it's time. We're not going to waste time anymore. And we're going to do what we need to do. We'll do everything that we possibly can. And we're going to go for it. And I said, okay. I mean, I was so naive because when you go from having a three week late, nine pound baby boy to a 24 week, three day baby boy, you kind of have expectations (laughs) that are not realistic. So I was like, oh, well, will I just dilate to 10 centimeters and you'll just reach in and pull them out. And they were like, uh, no, that's not how your body works. I was like, oh. And so um, I had a great awakening to delivering a, a little one that was 786 grams. And he came into the world. And I think he was feisty from the moment he came into the world because they were like, oh, we don't know. You know, they pr- prepare you for everything. And uh, they said, you know, if he doesn't breathe or he doesn't fight for life, you know, we're just, we'll do all that we can, but we're not going to force it. And oh no, not him. They said, oh, he's lively. He came out kicking and doing his version of a scream and moving around. And so they intubated him very quickly. And then our life began of a three month stint in the neonatal intensive care unit at Emanuel Hospital, also known as the NICU, which is a nice shorter way to say it. Our life just started from there. And, you know, they told us he wouldn't hear. They told us he would catch up by the time he was two. They told us so many things. And so we went home prepared to just start life as normal and probably Probably at about, I would say about a year and a half, he had his first seizure and we didn't really know what to do. Obviously, we didn't know what it was about. The hospital thought basically that maybe he was getting sick. And sometimes when kids get a high temperature, they will have a seizure. And so we kind of let that go. Six months later, same thing. They asked if he was ill. We were like, we don't think so. And so we just kept going based on the fact that maybe he had a cold or maybe he was, you know, getting a little virus or something. And then I think he had his next seizure that lasted for about 
six hours, clued us in that something wasn't right. And from that point, he got on seizure medication and our life pretty much changed from that six hour moment at Emanuel Hospital to, you know, constant medication, constant monitoring, realizing that there was something going on with him as he got taller. He wasn't able to control his, um, they call it his trunk, which is basically your chest area. And we went to OHSU just to have him examined and realized that he needed OT and PT. Uh, Well, PT is physical therapy, OT is occupational therapy, and then he needed speech therapy as well because then there were all these eating disorders that came with being born prematurely. That just became our life. You know, I often look back and think, was I really prepared to be, you know, I would ask myself these questions. Am I prepared to be this kid's mother? Like who said I was the one that was ready for for this? And, uh, you know, we just jumped in and uh, Alan and I both had very different strengths during that time. And I was very much one that was like, I need to work to be able to come and really dedicate myself to him when I get home. And Alan was the opposite. He was very much like, I want to be at home as much as I can. And then I will, you know, I'll go to work intermittently or when time permits. And so it worked out really well that we were a great complement to one another in that way, because, you know, we started realizing the seizures were ongoing and regular and consistent, we also ran into the fact that he wasn't learning how to walk. He wasn't learning how to talk as well as what we had anticipated. And so we just had a whole host of things that kind of just took us in a direction that I don't think either one of us expected, but we wouldn't change anything um, if we were asked to do it. So, you know, he had a great, he was fully wheelchair bound by the time he was Mm -hmm. in kindergarten. And we had a lovely school in North Portland that I believe still has a ramp today. The principal was amazing and was like, we don't know what to do with this special needs kiddo, but we want him at our school. And uh, they built a ramp for him so that he could get to and from his classroom. And then from there, we realized he needed a little more care and he transitioned to special needs classrooms from that point on. Then, you know, we realized that uh, his time with us was going to be short and we didn't know what that meant, of course. And pretty much right before he passed away, we we learned that he had a disorder that didn't have any name to it. There were only two other people that had passed away from it before. And he was the only one living at the time, but then he passed away two days later. So he was the third person to pass away from whatever this series of numbers and letters are. And one day when I have all this time on my hands, we will start to do something where hopefully we can put a name to the disorder and then other children will start, you know, if we see other children or not we, cause I'm not a doctor, but if the doctors or neurologists start to see kiddos with these types of symptoms, they can test for that. And then hopefully find, they don't believe there's a cure right now, but maybe in time they will find something. Is that why they thought he had all the seizures? This disorder? Yes. Mm-hmm. Oh. The dis- mm-hmm. They believe that the disorder, when they found what was going on with the other two 
kiddos from this disorder, they realized it was the seizures, it was the limited trunk control, it was the developmental delays, it was the immobility, all of that contributed to. And there was like a one in four chance that a child would have this disorder. So he could have been born perfectly normal with it, but we would, you know, obviously that didn't happen. It's interesting because when you think about his life It's so funny to to see he did so many things in that 13 and a half year time frame. He went to uh, Beverly Cleary Middle School and he had two girlfriends. It's interesting when you think about physical therapy and occupational therapy and speech therapy, because at some point they just say, well, he's not improving. So because he's not improving, we're just going to stop all of that. And what we would try to explain to insurance companies and the school, it's like, no, you don't understand him being engaged. Actually, you all don't see it, but we see it at home. And I knew he had two girlfriends when he said to me, mommy, cut my hair so Sophie can see me tomorrow. And I was like, who is Sophie? I mean, it was clear as a bell. And so it's really quite amazing just to see that in that shorter lifespan, A, how many lives he affected, mm-hmm. and B, that he was able to live kind of a full life in such a short time frame. So he was just a, a true blessing to us that I don't think we could have asked for a, a better, more determined, more driven little person than him. Oh, that's amazing. I think that the last time I saw Amir, he was probably three or four years old. So mm-hmm. I don't feel like I knew the later version of him at all. Yeah. So. Yeah, very bossy. Was um, he really? Oh, yeah. Told stories on his older brother. And, you know, of course, because as parents, you're like, oh, he's disabled. He has special needs. So he's not doing any of this. <laughs> and our son would be like, mom, he is not telling the truth. Like he would drop something and he would say, stop it, James. And we'd be like, James, why are you being so mean to him? And he's like, I'm not doing anything. And then finally we would stand in a place where he couldn't see us. And we would literally watch him like get his brother in trouble. And so it was just such an amazing experience to just see their relationship and how he would tease him and taunt him just like he was a a normal seven, eight, nine, ten 10 year old. So it was mm-hmm. great. It was really Oh my gosh. Oh yeah. So you found out not too long before he died that he was going to die. Is that kind of what happened? Yeah. So when um, at some point, the neurologist at OHSU, who was amazing, had recommended that we transition Amir to palliative care. And when we did that, we kind of had a really good conversation around what was going to be his quality of life. And we knew that he wasn't going to, you know, they kind of just put it to us really clearly that, of course, we can never tell when someone is, you know, at what age they're going to pass away. But we knew based on his condition and the things that were happening to him and the lengths of his hospital stays that he had a degenerative disorder, something we didn't know what at the time. And that was going to probably mean that his lifespan wouldn't be as long as the average child. Oh, that must have been such difficult news to, to receive. Yeah. And you know, you, it's funny. I always think about our journey back then. And I was more like, I want to celebrate him while he is here. Mm -hmm. I don't care about taking him to the doctor. I don't care. I mean, not that I, and I say that meaning that 
that wasn't my focus. I mm-hmm. wasn't going to be every time something went wrong, we had to run to the doctor to get a diagnosis. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to do the fight of tell me what he has, where my husband was completely different. He was like, what does he have? How can we help him? What can we do? Which I think is the beauty of marriage and the mm-hmm. beauty of our union is that we balance one another. Because I think if we were both on the same page in either way, we probably would have driven a lot of people crazy. <laughs> Yeah. It, it made it easier because my focus was just on, okay, I'm going to spend as much time as I can with him. And, oh, you went to the doctor. That's great. What did they say? Okay, mm-hmm. fine. You want to do the, the IEP at, you know, at school. That's really wonderful. I'm not going, you know, it was just, mm-hmm. a um, but that was my way of coping with the fact that I knew his time was going to be short, you know, and so it just, it worked for me at the time. I was just on this podcast interview that I was on yesterday. I was talking about how lucky I feel that our marriage was able to survive because, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, as oh, you know, yes. first of all, you had the NICU and then you had raising a disabled child and either of those separately could destroy a marriage. Oh, we were told to get, Marie, when I tell you that we were actually told to get divorced. What? Oh yeah. Social security. Oh my gosh. It was so, it's so common. If you want, if you want benefits for your child, um, in order for that to happen, you know, you make too much money, so you probably Uh should split up and then you probably will get more benefit. And one of you shouldn't work so that the other person can get the benefit. I mean, it was Mm -hmm. so incredibly odd to us that we were being advised to not be together. And there were a lot of assumptions that were being made around how much money we made. So we would get referred to programs and we'd be like, we don't qualify. And they would be like, sure you do. And I'd be like, no, because there's this thing that says income that disqualifies us. And they'd be like, oh, and we'd be like, it was just so odd to us. Many years later, I learned that Barack Obama had put something in place for if you had a child that was born premature, you would get a certain amount of funding, you know, due to them being born prematurely. And I was like, wow, that would have been super helpful. A a friend of mine had a child born, I think it was at 26 weeks and was able to benefit from that. So (laughs) it didn't help us, but it, you know, it is nice to know that kids are now being able to be assisted in that way because it is the expense It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter whether you are rich or poor. It doesn't matter your race. It is very difficult and expensive to raise a special needs child. Very, very expensive. And when we finally got assistance from the state of Oregon, we were like, how did we do this number on our own? (laughs) Wait, this is the number you're spending on what we were spent. It was, it's just incredible to think about the expense, which is partially why we started our foundation. So, so this is just, I'm just unimaginable grief going through the Nikki experience of them losing a mirror. How have you honored a mirror in memory, and what wisdom do you have for other people who are experiencing these types of griefs in their lives? The way we chose to honor his memory. So I'm a planner. Sometimes it's I'm a planner to a fault. <laughs> and when I started to see him deteriorate. I instantly knew that there was something that I was supposed to do that was bigger than what we were experiencing, but I never really knew what that was. And the day that he passed away, it hit me. And I just knew that I had to help other children. I had to help other parents 
other caregivers, other facilities that were taking the time to care for special needs children. I just knew that that was what we were supposed to do. And so we started a foundation in his honor called A Miracle Foundation Incorporated. And it has probably been one of the most healing experiences that I have ever had, that I could say I've had from losing. I mean, I haven't lost any other children but Amir, but it's been a very healing experience to see other families benefit, to see other children benefit Mm -hmm from the services, if insurance won't cover something and we're able to fund, you know, seating equipment or other types of equipment, weighted blankets, things like that. It just puts a smile on our faces and really does help with the healing process. So that's a way that we've been able to honor him. And it's nice to know that after we started the foundation the year he passed away in 2012, and now we're serving about 2,500 children, whether it's through the Portland Public School District or Beaverton School District or one of the hospitals, OHSU, Randall Children's, Providence, we are doing so much. Of course, I'd love to do more, but what we are doing is so amazing and it really does. It really does make me happy. And I think he would be proud to see that this is what we do and how we're serving not only children that are like him, but also developing a sense of community while we do it. Oh, it's just amazing what you've done. When we were on that family advisory board and mm-hmm. we were dreaming up the Randall NICU, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, remember being in that NICU when we had to, when we would do kangaroo care or, mm-hmm. and we had those little rickety curtains, we had to go grab those curtains. Yes, yes. <laughs> Yes, yes, yes. And it really (laughs) did not give much privacy. And we were so close to everybody and like, oh my gosh. And and you know, that that new NICU is just amazing. It's beautiful. It really is. It really, I think I, I love the whole... It's nice to have been part of the old Emanuel Hospital and now part of Randall Children's Hospital, even though Amir transitioned more as a teen when he was there. But it is truly an amazing, it's always been an amazing place, whether it was the older hospital, part of the older hospital or the new hospital. I love that they allow just the parent to be involved and engaged in the care of the child and they actually want to hear what you have to say. And that has always been why Randall Children's Hospital is so near and dear to my heart. I agree. I just love thinking back to those early days, you know, and it was a great group we had there on the Family Advisory Board. It was. The Beginnings, wasn't it? Yeah, definitely. It was. It really was. And, yeah. and it's funny because you're able to help, but in such a different capacity because you're actually have the kid with you that, that you're going through something with that you're able to also help a parent, which is mm-hmm. really nice. Yeah, definitely. So going to take a different route. Last time we met for coffee, we talked about the increased outright racism in the country And that was before George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and more. Mm -hmm. How are you feeling about what's happening in our world right now? It's a lot. I mean, number one, it's something that I don't think I ever thought I would experience in my lifetime. I think I was, I'll be honest, that I was a little bit jaded. And I didn't think life was perfect by any means, but I definitely thought that our country was in a different place. And I struggle because I'm older, so I'm not this, 
I'm going to go out and I'm going to protest. So I'm uh-huh. finding different ways to engage and mm-hmm. finding different ways to, whether it's through supporting, you know, minority owned businesses or supporting small businesses in general, getting out and making sure that people know the importance of voting, things like that. And so I'm just trying to find my voice in all of this madness that's going on because it really affects you in many ways. And it doesn't only affect you personally, but it also affects you professionally as well. So for work, I do this work for a living um, in the DEI world or diversity, equity, and inclusion world. And, you know, you have to be mindful every day that some people are coming to work traumatized based on what's happening. Some people are trying to learn and find their space as we work through diversity, equity, and inclusion and, you know, everything in between. And how do you support yourself personally, but then also do it at work as well and make sure that everybody is whole. And it's just, if somebody would have told me a year ago that I would be dealing with this, I would be like, oh no, that's not, that's not the way it is. And now here we are. So it's very interesting. Do you feel like there are a lot more conversations that you're having in your role? How have the conversations changed? Yeah, you know, I think conversations were more intermittent if I look back a year ago. And then once we all learned about George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery and Breonna Taylor, one of the things I loved is that, so the Port of Portland, which is where I work, they have their own police and police were like, can we start having some conversation because we know people are hurting. And so I worked with them and our black employee group, which is called the Alliance of Black Employees. And we started something called Conscious Conversations and we have them every week. Mm -hmm. And every Thursday we come together. Uh, We've had anywhere from, you know, a hundred people join to almost 200 people join. And it really is a time for us to just have some deep conversation about what's going on. We started out very, because like, as you heard me mention earlier, I'm a planner. So we started out very structured. You know, we had like a couple of panel discussions and then I had them watch there's a little Trevor Noah clip about, you know, the difference between looting and rioting and the Central Park incident with Amy Cooper. And then we went to Kimberly Jones had a really great clip doing a great analogy around Monopoly and how the game of Monopoly is played and how the Black community fits into that. Hmm. Basically, they got to think about a few questions, and then we would just come and talk through the questions. And as we did that, we started to evolve where we got to a point where we started to just have our own things go on within the port that would spark us having our own discussions. So now we're we're doing that. And I think I use a lot of what I need to help fuel what happens at the port. So I know for me personally that I have to uh, look out for my own health and my own well-being mm-hmm. and be mindful that I have to take care of myself from a health perspective. And I instantly thought we need to do some healing and not only just joy, but everybody at the port. And so we are bringing in a culturally specific counselor next Thursday to come and talk to us a little bit about 
what we're experiencing and how do we move? I won't even say how do we heal because no sooner than we start to try to heal, there's another traumatic incident. So how do we move through all that's happening and what tools can we, can we provide ourselves or what can we do on a consistent basis that help us to heal in a way that we can, you know, still be productive, still feel like we're contributing at work and doing all of the work around diversity, equity, and inclusion. That's how we're doing it from a work perspective. Do you feel like you have more freedom to do what you need to do in your work at the port that you did in your previous job? Oh my goodness. Oh really? Yes. It's actually been one of the most liberating, eye-opening experiences that I didn't even realize was possible. When you are part of a company for a lot of years, or you've been in the same line of work for a lot of years, it's almost like you don't really know what's on the other side because Mm -hmm. you've never experienced the other side. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so... I decided literally a year ago this month to leave banking after 34 years. Mm -hmm. So my whole, I mean, basically most of my life has been in financial services and enter into the aviation world. And luckily I landed at a place that it feels like home. And I've never been able to say that any place that I've ever worked. That is fantastic. Mm -hmm. Talk about being my authentic self. I get to do that every day. And that's amazing. I get to have honest conversation. Of course, I have a manager who is amazing and phenomenal and engaged in the DEI work. So there's no explaining or having to not explain something because there's the possibility that she may not get it. It's like she gets it, she understands it, and she allows me to move through this space as the subject matter expert. And that is liberating. It really is. I'm so glad to hear that. That is great. You know, I know that a lot of companies hire DEI people and they just expect you to solve everything. (laughs) <laughs> without giving mm-hmm. you the support that you need, right? <laughs> right, right. Especially from the top. A lot of times you don't get the support from the top. Right. That's what's so unique about the Port of Portland is I feel supported from from every aspect, it, it, whether it's our executive leadership. So I have uh, a person on my team who does the equity work. I get great support from him. We're a great support to one another. I have employee resource groups that are a great support. I have also a group that's sort of like what you would consider a diversity council, but they're called Port of Portland Culture or Pop Culture. And then you have everyone else that works at the port that is really looking to provide you the support that you need in any way possible. So it really has been, you know, you have expectations when you have, when you're in a job for just the first year. And, you know, my expectations were, I don't want to say not high, but I was like, you know, Joy, be realistic. Maybe things will be different. Maybe things might not. They look one way when you're interviewing, but when you go in, it's something different. And I will say when I talk, when you talk about consistency, that's the one thing that I am super excited about that. While there were some nuances that were different, pretty much when I interviewed from the moment that I started the interview process all the way through to where I am today has been seamless, consistent, and 
just a journey that I would not have traded for anything. It actually has improved my health. A year ago, I will say, I don't think I was a very healthy individual because this work is hard. And I don't think a lot of people take the time to realize that it's emotionally draining, it's demanding. And especially if you're a woman of color like myself, you live it every day. And so that's another draining portion of it as well. I haven't been tired. I have I, people see me now and they're like, oh my gosh, you look so amazing. And I'm like, yes, I'm, I'm very happy. <laughs> and that's a good place to be. Well, I'm so glad that you're in a place where you feel supported, especially right now, because I know it's just been extra hard on Black people lately. Yeah, news, it has. You know? And so I'm, I'm glad that you were in a place where you felt supported to go through all this. Well, thank you. I'm, yeah. I'm really, really happy. I mean, yeah. even I can't I'm express sure. it enough. I'm like, I'm like <laughs> smiling right now as oh, I even talk great. about it. Oh, you deserve that it. It's a blessing. Yeah, it's it's hard. I'm sure it's just exhausting work. Do you remember the first time that you experienced sexism or racism in the workplace? I was thinking about this myself the other day. Sexism. Ooh. I do, actually. I was working at First Interstate Bank, and that was where the sexism came in. And I was just like, what is going, you know, you almost, it's almost like you don't realize, is this really happening to me? Mm -hmm. (laughs) And you're like, mate, am I not understanding what's going on? And when you do, it's like, how do you react to it? And I was so young at the time it's amazing to realize what you will let pass or what you will let slide because you're very concerned about how you're going to move up in an organization or how you're going to be perceived at an organization. So I stayed quiet Mm -hmm. and I allowed people to just think, oh, because Joy's a woman, she can only do this type of job. And even when I had, as I moved on from First Interstate, to U.S. Bank when I had someone say, hey, would you be interested in doing this different job? I didn't even consider, oh, someone's trying to get me out of what the norm is or what the typical job, quote unquote, for a woman is. And I I just said no, because it wasn't a comfort zone. And so I even missed out on opportunities because I was so busy being put into a certain position or given certain opportunities that I then managed to you know, not even see something different being offered for me at the time. So it was very, um, very interesting. And then racism, you know, I think it's always been very subtle. And in banking, which is where my career mostly was, it's a pretty white male dominated field. Mm -hmm. And you don't even, it's so funny. Like, I think I was always so concerned with just doing the right thing and making sure that I stayed in my perfect little box that people thought I should be in that I assimilated so much that I almost wound up acculturating. And when you acculturate, you almost lose a sense of who you are. And I think it was about, oh, maybe seven, maybe now eight years ago that I had kind of this mini meltdown (laughs) where I was like, who am I? I know I'm black. I know I grew up, you know, in New York City and I've had these experiences, but I was almost in Oregon so long and had worked so hard to assimilate that I really felt like I lost a sense of who I was. 
And so the racism part, I focused more on, oh, that they really didn't mean it like that. Let me just move on. When I look back, I'm like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I lived through, you know, someone talking about my hair or someone making comments about my features or someone saying, oh, Joy, you really present well for a Black woman, or oh, Joy, you know, uh, or oh, Joy, you um, you can do the entertainment for us. So things like that, just now that I look back, that I, things that I overlooked, which now I don't experience, thank goodness, but I, I overlooked a lot when I was younger to think that I was going to be able to get ahead. And you don't even realize it as for me, I can't speak for everybody. I didn't realize it as I was even doing it. I was just like, I have to show people that I am able to do the job the way they want to see it done. And in my mind, that was what I attributed to success. So it's kind of like you had some imposter syndrome earlier, oh, yes. right? I mm-hmm. feel like in my career that really it was a couple of well-placed men that believed in me, mm-hmm. that really pushed me out of my comfort zone. I don't think I would have gotten where I where I did without them. Yeah. I, and you know, I often wish I would have listened to the one individual who actually now is the CEO of Umqua Bank. He came to me, I must have only worked for him about a year. And he said, hey, why don't you try this new position, this different position? You know, the two banks had merged and my position was going away. And he said, you have choice A or choice B. He's like, Joy, my choice for you would be choice B. You heard me talk a little bit before about how I was so trained to believe that I could only be in one position based on what people had told me over the years that I leaned to the position that was most comfortable versus the one that probably would have taken my career in a completely different direction, stretched me far far beyond what I expected. I probably would have been maybe one of the first Black women to actually be in, you know, the commercial real estate department at U.S. Bank. And I was just scared. And I was like, nope, I'm not going to do it. And so it's funny because I learned from that. And he laughed at me when he became, not laughed at me in a bad way, but when he became the CEO of Umqua, he was like, you do realize that all the things you do now are exactly what you could have done in that role, just with a little bit of a twist. And I was like, yeah, I realize that now. And, you know, so I, I definitely, when I look back, the one thing I took is when you have those people or individuals that are in your corner that are going to stretch you, take those stretch assignments, take those stretch opportunities because they will definitely yield you in a much different place, I believe. That's really a really good lesson. And I and one of my questions is thinking back to yourself at age 21 and what would you say to her now? That would be one of the things you'd say to her probably, right? It would definitely be. And I would, I would tell her to be bold enough to make decisions, even though other people may think those decisions are not good for you. I I always laugh about this story. I always wanted to be a teacher. I wanted to be a, this is so random that it's so specific, an 11th grade English teacher that's taught English composition. And I I guess it's where you read story, read books, and then you analyze the books, whatever that is in in a teacher. And my mother was like, nope, you are not going to do that. You're going to go into business because you are not going to be without funds 
as a teacher because teachers don't make a lot of money. And I was just like, well, I'm not making money now. So anything I get will be better than nothing. You know, <laughs> that was my mind. And in my, in my, I honestly believe that I wanted the value of time, summers off, holidays off, you know, er- retiring earlier than, than most people. And she said, nope, this is what you're going to do. And I listened. And it wasn't until I was a junior in college and I was doing a presentation on Black English and Ebonics and what that all meant. And I had these posters all over the house and I was going over my presentation that she walked by and she said, oh, wow, you really would have been a good teacher. And I was so upset. I would just cry. And even though I will tell you, she showed me her paycheck when she got her PhD, which was equivalent to my paycheck working in business. And they were the same. And she was 51 and I was late 20s at the time. And so I got what her point was. But at the same time, I really wish I would have been bold enough just to say, I'm taking this step. I don't want to be in business. I want to be a teacher and just would have done it. So I would definitely go back and tell my 21-year-old self, just be bold. That's too bad you never got to be a teacher. Well, I did in a long, I mean, I did teach a little bit at U of O, but I mean, I'm now it was in my fifties. So it's like, well, and actually you're, I mean, you're in the kind of role that you have, you're probably teaching all the time, right? Yes. Yes. And I found ways to be creative. You know, I got to participate in a leaders as educators program, you know, at my previous job and, you know, I teach now. And so it it worked out. But when I look back and I'm like, "Mm, this would have been my year of retirement. I would have been okay with that. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) That is true. So what have you read or watched recently that has inspired you? So recently I read the book, Waking Up White, and I forget who it's by, but I read that book and I read it because I wanted to have an understanding of what other people that didn't look like me thought about the world, so to speak, or their perception of what the world is like to them. And it actually was a really eye-opening book. I remember I listened to it on tape and the author would be saying things like, oh, we tried this in this community and we went right in and here's what I thought was going to happen. And I'd be like, oh, that's not going to work. And she'd be like, and that didn't work. And it, um, <laughs> it was great to hear from a white woman's perspective, what was taught, what their expectations were and their outlook on just life itself. And then to come to the realizations of what reality was and what really was affecting communities and what really was important to other communities that didn't look like hers. And so it turned out to be a really great, great read for me. And then I consistently watch the documentary 13th, watch it on a regular basis, because even though I tell everyone I am not a social activist, I did not get into the world or the realm of diversity and inclusion for that reason. I got into it because of my son who passed away. And that's a whole another story. But I tend to watch that so that I am educated and have a very clear understanding of the construct of our country. It helps me when I am working to educate individuals that don't understand many things about diversity, equity, and inclusion gives me a point of reference in how I approach it 
And so I watched 13th. Mm -hmm. I also uh, love the documentary with James Baldwin, uh, I Am Not Your Negro. Mm -hmm. uh, it is incredibly powerful. What is a little sad to me, though, is that things that were talked about in the 50s, 60s are still being talked about I now. Know. So that's a little bit daunting to me. Yes. But essentially, you know, I just find them both two compelling things that I like to watch on a regular basis. And then I regularly record and watch United Shades of America with Kamau Bell, mm -hmm. because I think he touches on so many compelling topics that are prevalent today in our country. So um, those are my top things so far. Great. I actually just watched 13th for the first time last weekend. I've been oh, hearing wow. I've been hearing about it for so long and I you know I I felt like I needed to be in the right frame of mind to watch mm -hmm. it and mm -hmm. it was yeah it was excellent. I I'm going to watch it again with Mike cuz I feel like he needs to watch it. And if if I don't do it with him, he probably won't get around to it. Right. <laughs> So, and the, I understand. And I haven't heard of Waking Up White, but the other book that I recently revisited was Black Like Me. Did you ever mm -hmm. read Black no. Like Me? No. Yeah. Is, is that good? I've heard about it, though. Well, you know, it's from, you know, it was written in 1959 or 1960, so it's so old. But from a historical viewpoint, I think it's worth the time. It, like, uses the word Negroes, for example. I mean, it's definitely of the time. Mm -hmm. But it's mm -hmm. it, it actually was a very interesting story. And like he talks about, I remember when he, he goes, he basically travels around the South that he reflects on the different environment in each city that he goes to. Oh, wow. And yeah. Like in the, I think it was Montgomery, Alabama. I think he talked about how he could tell the influence of Dr. King on the black residents there and wow. how it drove the whites crazy that, you know, they were, they were just like showing up peacefully and nonviolently and, and the whites like wanted more than that. They wanted mm -hmm. to you know, get a, get a, get some sort of a reaction out of them. And yeah, but it, it is, it's interesting. I read it in high school. So it was interesting to read it again. Oh yeah. I could imagine just the different perspectives from then and yeah. now. There are some things that I, that I think, yeah, that's really, it's really dated. But, mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. again, I feel the same way with you. It's like, oh my God, it feels like we should have made more progress by now. Right, you know? right. And then you realize that you have not. And it's like, well, what do you do with it? You know, we talk a lot at the Port of Portland about hope and, mm -hmm. you know, having hope. But I'm like, oh my gosh, how many decades do we have hope for? And I'm like, well, I'm assuming just eternal decades <laughs> we'll have hope for because it's like, that's a lot of time to put in for hope, but you know you need to have hope, but it gets to be a little bit daunting at times. So. I, yeah, and I've been really feeling that way with like the killing over the weekend and then the mm -hmm. fact that the feds killed the, the Antifa guy-ish. Like, I mean, it's really, it's discouraging right now. What, you know, where, where are we headed? Yeah, exactly. And you don't know where we're headed. And that's mm -hmm. what's so, what's just so hard to sometimes digest because you just don't know. And just living in just this time of uncertainty when I, you know, I have a son who's going to be 30. I have uh, grandchildren now. And it's like, what is, and even there at, at 10 five and four, they are talking about race, yeah. which is something that I never thought would happen. And I have my four-year-old like telling me, granny, 
I'm just Cairo. I'm not black. I'm like, I get what you're saying. And, you know, why am I talking to a four-year-old about, you know, being black? Like, it's just, I wish I could just spare them because they're so young. But at the same time, you want to help them understand, but are they too young? No, because they're the ones that are bringing up the conversation. So it's very interesting. Yeah, it's, it is interesting. I, I listened to Alicia Keys book a few months ago and, and she talked about about the way she decided to tell her children, teach her children about race, she decided mm-hmm. that she would teach them about Africa first. Oh. And Africa as in historical Africa, you know, like Black Panther type Africa. You know, right, right. What, what, <laughs> what could have been, right? And right. Know, basically, she wanted to know that they were descended from kings and queens. And I love that idea. Before talking about racism, talking mm-hmm. to children about about their ancestry. And we don't always go in that direction. No, you know, I, we often go with the the opposite. We don't and a lot of times we're not even sharing about that part of our lives. One of the women that I interviewed for my podcast, Jackie Capers Brown, she um, lives in Columbia, South Carolina, and she was telling me that they have a lot of black leaders there, elected mm-hmm. leaders there, and she said, "I don't think I can live anywhere where where we didn't have those." She, I was saying, oh, yeah, like Portland, <laughs> yeah. like Portland. I was telling her about. She'd never been to Portland. I was telling her about Portland. It's like, yeah, it's hard to be a, a black or brown person in Portland, and she said, "I'm going to pray for those." people in Portland. <laughs> it's like, but she, she was telling me that she went to a an all-Black school until, mm-hmm. so she's maybe like, I think she's like in her late 50s. She okay. went to an all-Black school until she was in fourth grade, and then they started busing. So then she was mm-hmm. sent to a mostly white school, and, and it was a horrible, a horrible a, awakening for her. But she said that up through third grade, she was told how amazing she was. Mm-hmm. She had that drilled into her. And what a great foundation to have, you know, and a lot of our black kids don't get that. Yeah, it's so interesting, even just being from a different coast, like, yeah, coming from New York. The things that I experience here, I just don't understand because I did not experience those things when I grew up. It was very diverse. You had so many different cultures. Everybody, I mean, I'm not saying it was perfect, but everybody had their own, you know, nuances about who they were and where they came from. It's funny because I'll go home and people will be like, they don't know if they should speak to me in Spanish or in English. They don't know if I'm Dominican or if I'm Black. And it doesn't matter. It's very interesting to be in a place where things are so Black and white. (laughs) You know, it's very, and then you're like, but wait, there's also all these other people too. And that's important. And just trying to, to digest that, even having been here for 30 years, it is still quite an experience, I will say. Yeah. I mean, do you ask yourself often why you stay? Why do you stay? Having been from New York, I just sometimes wonder, because it's hard to be, I know it's hard to be a black or brown person here. You're such an extreme minority. Yeah. And I think if I was going to leave, I should have probably left about 25 years ago. (laughs) Yeah, right. But once you are here and you learn how to navigate Mm-hmm. And you find your sense of community, which you heard me talk in the beginning about my sorority has been my sense of community here for me. You learn to adjust 
And I've adapted, I would say. I don't know if I've adapted in a good way or a bad way. Uh, I will just say that I have adapted. I have learned to, I can do the Northwest nice where I put things nice at the beginning, say what I need to say in the middle and package it up beautifully at the end. I'm really good at that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I lost my accent uh, because I was told when I first came here that that was not going to work. So I think because I came here when I was so young, and I'm saying so young, 20, I think I was 24, I was willing to do things that had I come here when I was 35, 40, I probably wouldn't be willing to do today had I been in New York longer and then moved here. Mm -hmm. But I was like, look, I have to be successful. I don't know that I'm going to get remarried. So I'm going to, I might be a single mom. So I have to be able to be able to provide for my son. And luckily I had someone that said, do you really want to know what it takes to be successful here? And I said, sure. And when I, when she told me, I was like, are you kidding me? Like, you can't just tell people what's wrong with them to package it up pretty. Like it, none of it made sense. Oh, and I have to look you in your face when I'm talking to you. We don't do that in New York city. I mean, it was just all of these things, but I really wanted to try, you know, I didn't know what else to do when I was here. So I just adapted and adapting did help me be successful. I I won't lie about that. But like you heard me mention, I did lose, I think, a little bit of who I was in the process. And as I find that person, I'm trying to balance both. Um, I think that making those changes when I was so young enables me to do the job that I do uh, right now, along with a little bit of help from a 13 and a half year old that taught me more than I ever thought I would ever learn. So luckily, I think my mother did raise a confident enough child that I'm not ashamed of who I am. I'm very confident in who I am. I know who I am. And I recognize everybody's different and how someone handled their living here is very different than how I handled mine. And hopefully we are all successful. So it's been interesting. It is very different. I mean, the East Coast mentality Mm -hmm. is very different. And I grew up here. So I, I mean, I know the West Coast, but I've having worked with people from the East Coast, Mm -hmm. it is, it is a different kind of spirit. husband says I get off of a plane and he's like, who are you? Oh, really? <laughs> you go back to your New Yorker way? I instantly go back. Instantly. In, in a flash. I in, And I thought, you know, in my mind, I thought, oh, after 30 years, I wouldn't. Yeah. But nope, I go right back. He even says, is that an accent I hear? I'm oh, like, whatever, just be quiet. You'll, you'll have to tell Alan that when Mike talks to his sister or his mom on the phone, the mm-hmm. kids notice it too. His accent yes. immediately yep. goes back and <laughs> That's a thing. Yeah, you've got, not only do you have your accent, but you probably have your attitude as well, right? Exactly. Oh, (laughs) yes. Oh, yes. Because it's permissible, you know, there it's very permissible. We're here. Uh, I learned very quickly being that strong black woman that my mother created was not widely accepted in the business world. It just Uh wasn't. For me, I kind of went into, okay, well, what's important? It's important for me to eat. It's important for me to get paid. It's important for me to be successful. So if I have to give someone else an idea and it gets implemented and I benefit, I'm good. And that was the approach I took. And so it worked for me. Would I probably do it now? Probably not. I'd probably be a little bit more like, this is what I have to say. But um, at the time, it wasn't a popular thing to do. Mm -hmm. And so 
you adjust. That's interesting. So Jackie, the one I was telling you about, she she worked for Marriott Hotels and she was sent to Wilmington, North Carolina, where you know there aren't as many powerful black people. And the hotel she was working in was 20% black and 80% white on, t- on the staff. And they did not deal well with having a black woman boss who is very spirited. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. so she talked about having to kind of bring them around and she's very much like that as well. She lives her life fully out loud and you know she's very spirited and enthusiastic and it's kind of sad in a way that you felt like you had to change yourself yeah I mean and it's funny because now that I look back I'm trying not to feel sad about it I looked at it as more of like survival of the fittest yeah (laughs) do what I need to do Uh you know if it makes people happy that you know and even oh gosh it should be so funny when they would think I was upset I was like you think this is upset no 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 this is very calm and so you know but I just saw it as you know I I kind of just realized that work was work and you know if that's what made them happy fine and then when I came home and I was part of my community and you know doing things in my community I was all of who joy wanted to be Mm -hmm. and it was I will say when work gets stressful and you're juggling and we'll call it what it is it's covering when you're covering at work and then coming home and being a different person and work is stressful, it gets very, very hard. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I learned during that time was that I will not cover anymore. So I did learn something from that because it can affect your health to the point where there's depression is involved, there's physical illnesses involved, and it's just too much to bear. And I will never live in that situation or put myself in that situation ever again. So that that I did learn something from it. <laughs> uh, well, and I yeah. imagine that also you've got banking. Banking's, you know, different. I mean, we all mm-hmm. have to fit in when we're learn how to fit into the corporate world, but banking is, I'm sure, way more uptight. <laughs> it, it, it is. And it's funny because I look at how I met, like, I don't manage people directly now, but I even think about my management style and it's very rigid is not a good term to use, but it's, it's pretty, you know, structured and everything has to have its place. Everything has to have a plan. And I'm not very fluid. Like I think I probably would be had I been in another industry and, you know, I'm okay with that. You know, I like, I'm, I'm fine with it. I always wonder had I left banking earlier, you know, what would my style be now? Who would I be now? But, you know, well, they say hindsight is 2020. So I'm just right. looking forward. And I will say that not having to wake up every day and cover not having to wake up every day and think about who I am going to be when I walk into an office and just be able to walk into an office and be joy, just joy. Whether it's my hair is curly, whether my hair is straight, whether my hair is, whether I'm, you know, dressed up wearing cowgirl boots or dressed up wearing business attire, like Joy just shows up as joy. And I I think you heard me say it is the most liberating thing. And I will never go back now that I've had a taste of what that's like and how it makes me feel every day. I attribute that to the people that I work with. 
I really yeah, do. That's great. So my final question is, is there a story of grit and resilience that has been an inspiration for you in your life? I would probably, it would probably be raising Amir and doing that while he was at his most sick, if that's even correct English. <laughs> I don't even know. Sure. <laughs> uh, and doing it while working almost 70 hours a week and trying to make sure that no one really recognized that I was caring for someone who was incredibly ill and someone who I knew was not going to have a long lifespan and giving 150% at work. Wow. Yeah. So you're your own inspiration story. Yeah. And he is yeah. like, it's funny. And he when is, he, yeah. yeah. And it's funny because he would wake up every day with a smile on his face, no matter what oh. happened to him. He could have broken a limb because of too much medication. You know, over time, medication softens your, your, your bones and he'd wake up with a smile. He could have had a horrible seizure, a horrible night, and he would wake up with a smile. And that smile would fuel me to go into work and give 150%. And it's interesting because when he passed away, people didn't even realize I was raising a special needs kiddo. Really? And his pediatrician at our memorial was like, oh yeah, you didn't know that Joy hardly ever slept at night. Mm. And then she would come into work every day and she would give you all her all. And when she said that, all of the people that I worked with at the time that were there had a very different perspective of me, you know, after he had passed away. It was very interesting. And so I would say that was probably a time where it was true grit really really kicked in for me. It was just about a sense of determination, a sense of I was almost on an overdrive, so to speak, because I knew it was almost like this cyclical thing. I had to be successful so that I could care for Amir. I had to care for Amir, which then fueled my success. And so it was just like this, mm. um, this unending circle. And I often tell people that when I look back, I thought I was helping him. But in the long run, when I look at my life now, just the remaining part of my life that I have to live, he changed me mm-hmm. and he taught me more than I would ever be able to have taught myself about love, about compassion, about understanding, about meeting people where they're at, about leading the work that I do with love versus any other there is no other alternative but to lead with love. And I always tell people at work, I know that sounds corny, but it really does allow me to speak to people that are on multiple ends of the diversity, equity, and inclusion spectrum, whether they believe in it or they are fully advanced. Um, I can have the same conversation because I'm leading and guiding in the same way. So that I would say those that time of raising him and losing him taught me so much. Wow. Well, thank you so much for sharing your story, Joy. It's just been a wonderful opportunity to catch up with you. It's been amazing. I've loved talking to you. Good. Let's do it again soon. Yes. We won't record it. We won't record it next time. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's been so wonderful just catching up. I know. I'm so glad to reconnect with you after all those years. Where I know. I know. Please give my love to Alan. I will definitely do that. And please just tell your family I said hello, all the boys and Mike, just tell them I just said hello and that um, I'm thinking of them. 
I will. Thank you so much, Joy. Have a great weekend. Okay, you do the same. Okay. I loved my conversation with my longtime friend, Joy, and I was amazed once again about her strength and resilience. Next week, I interview my friend, Jasmine Dea Singh, who was born in Brazil and is a Latin Grammy-nominated concert and jazz pianist and brilliant composer. He happens to be a Sikh after growing up Catholic, now working as an adult caregiver when he's not making music. Jasmine is one of the kindest, most gentle people I know. Thanks for listening to the Finding Fertile Ground podcast. Our music is by jazz pianist Jonathan Swanson. This podcast is brought to you by Fertile Ground Communications. Look us up on fertilegroundcommunications.com. Mm-hmm.